Hey, Beatles fans. Wouldn't it be nice to do an episode about the Fab Four and their good vibrations? God only knows whether you're a California girl or just surfing USA, you'll love today's Beatles book, All the Songs, by Jean-Michel Gestin and Philippe Magotin. Kokomo. I do not approve this message. And this is The Book File, a comedy podcast about the best of books and the worst of books. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I thought I was a pretty decent Beatles fan because I can sing along with over a hundred Beatles songs. But after reading this book, I found that I wasn't familiar with about a hundred other Beatles songs. (laughs) I know. I can't believe what they made in like eight years or something. And I'm David Vance. Today we finish covering the Mount Rushmore of my childhood. We've done Harry Potter, Calvin and Hobbes, Pixar, and now the Beatles. Like actual Mount Rushmore, my Mount Rushmore probably could have been just a little less white. (laughs) All right, real quick, if you want to see me live, Mill Valley, California, tonight, June 15th. St. Paul, Minnesota, July 7th through the 8th. Then on to Mondovi, Wisconsin, July 9th. And West Jordan, Utah. I'll be there July 21st through 22nd. Go to my shows and celebrate Pioneer Day Eve. (laughs) Ooh. It's when the ghosts of pioneers come out (laughs) and bore you with their stories. (laughs) Ramona, California, August 12th. And then, of course, if I haven't mentioned it before, I'm actually going to be in Des Moines, Iowa, December 9th (laughs) through the 10th. Go to KellenErskine.com for all those tickets. How can we make this Iowa show a bigger deal? How can we raise the stakes to try to sell that out before any of the other shows? <laughs> I'll tell them that I'll, I will, I'm giving out free corn. <laughs> That's what they like over there, right? <laughs> you alienate the whole audience from <laughs> just, the drop. <laughs> so I'm just basing the corn thing off of... You, you ever see that map as a kid of the United States and it's like Golden Gate Bridge on this side, Statue of Liberty over here, and in the middle it's just like yeah. the St. Louis Arch and then a, a giant cob of corn. <laughs> so, Kellen, I'm going to start by saying the Beatles are so beloved that I want to say I'm obsessed with them, but I'm worried if I say that, someone who knows more than me will ride in like, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah obsessed? Then tell me which Beatles are circumcised, Beatles boy. <laughs> I also tried to make a bunch of lessons about their creative process, and I felt kind of like a fraud because I realized if I knew why they were that good, I would also be that good. (laughs) And plus, it's hard to make really strong conclusions from the outside. Like, imagine watching a couple NASA launches and then doing an episode like, okay, fam, lessons from rocket science. You want to point the rocket up. (laughs) Anyway, I I really liked this book, but uh, what did you think, Kellen? I did too, and I had a similar experience because it's obviously so much easier to extrapolate lessons from like nonfiction books that just teach you lessons. (laughs) (laughs) But then reading this book, yeah, that was a challenge. Um, Like, what can I gain from this book other than just learning fun facts the whole time <laughs> like how can I <laughs> but I, I I absolutely loved it it was such a delight such fun like reading with it and listening to the music along the way and now like hearing songs differently based on new context yeah it was just such a, a thrilling experience also before we go any farther I think we should title this 
the impossible episode because I know that in talking about songs, we are going to miss people's favorite songs or we're going to love a song that people hate. We're going to make fun of someone's wedding song. You know that disclaimer that comes on on shows like the opinions expressed by those present do not represent the views (laughs) of this network. I think you and I need to make this disclaimer here, which should be obvious, but isn't. I just want to say that the views expressed about Beatles songs on this podcast are not necessarily your views. Yeah, Kellen can speak for himself. Right. So- <laughs> if you like a song different from me, I'll kill you. <laughs> I, just, I think it's crazy how all of us say art is subjective. <laughs> but then how very quickly so many people are to defend the art that they like the most as if their opinions are actually objective. <laughs> Well, I think I think it's because you can know something intellectually but not emotionally. Mm. Like intellectually, I know art is subjective. But if someone loves the Twilight books as an adult, I just I can't hold it in. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our next two episodes are part two of All the Songs and The Hobbit. All right, and without further ado, here are the fab four lessons that we took from <laughs> All the songs. If we end up cutting one of these lessons, we'll call it the Pete Best. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. How how many times in that guy's life do you think he had to hear the joke? Pete Best? Guess not. <laughs> Ringo, instead of Ringo Starr, Richard Stark, he should have actually made his stage name Pete Bestest. <laughs> So before I start this one, I have this theory that together John and Paul made songs that were fun and cool, and when they split up, John wasn't very fun and Paul wasn't very cool, because <laughs> Paul's songs were like, do-do-do, come on down to bubblegum land, <laughs> and John was like, I killed God. <laughs> I'm a little kidding, because I do listen to a lot of Paul's solo stuff, but look at their Christmas songs. Paul just wants you to know it's a wonderful Christmas time over and over. And John wants you to think about the war. <laughs> like, easy, John. Can't we have one day? Gosh. <laughs> so my first lesson is something that's very simple to say, but very hard to do, which is find collaborators who make you better. And again, if I knew what made the Beatles so great, I would also be that great. So I don't have hard rules here, but I, I do have a couple theories. And one is that I think what was magic for Lennon and McCartney was that they were both collaborating and competing with each other. Mm. Like Paul would write a number one hit with Can't Buy Me Love, so John would answer right back with A Hard Day's Night. And they just went back and forth like that with number one hits. And then George finally got one and they broke up the band. (laughs) (laughs) They released a compilation called 20 Greatest Hits and they left George's number one off. Wow. Isn't that the most George story? (laughs) But then on on top of being competitors, they were also such great collaborators that they could identify each other's weaknesses and really fix them in a song. Anyway, I kind of love those prolific creative pairs. Some of my favorites are like Polar and Faye and Key and Peele, Lord and Miller, the Williams sisters, Kahneman and Tversky. And I just feel like they all make each other better, both as competitors and as collaborators. Mm -hmm. So my takeaway is, Find someone who collaborates with you like John or Paul and not the way John and Paul treated George. (laughs) 
I read this interview with Paul where he basically said, yeah, I met George when we were still in school and he was a little bit younger than me. So I thought of him in this kind of younger brother way. And I realized that I never let go of that even when we were adults. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson two, don't be too precious with your art but also let your art be precious. And if you think that I'm trying to be clever (laughs) with a sort of parallel statement, then you would probably think that a statement of parallel would try to be clever. (laughs) No, so... Ask not what your country can do for you. Your country can do for you what you ask. (laughs) And by the end of this decade, the moon will land on us. (laughs) We will fight them on the beaches. We will beach them on the fights. (laughs) So I was about halfway through this book making notes on how many takes their notable songs took. Meaning, how many times did they record a song in the studio before they felt like they had a good enough version to use as Mm -hmm. like the core track for polishing up? And yes, I know what you're saying. We all wish that they would have done zero takes of Revolution 9. (laughs) So... At first, I thought it was onto something when I saw a pattern in their earliest albums of very few takes. Like, for context, nowadays, an artist can spend months on an album, right? Recording tracks, mixing, yeah. producing. Like, when Billie Eilish, I forget if this was in her documentary or on David Letterman's Netflix show, she, she brought up that she did 80 takes just on saying the word, duh, in one of her songs. No. Yes. <laughs> 80. In her defense. It is an amazing duh. It's an incredible duh. (laughs) But like, the White Stripes were known for knocking out albums quickly, sometimes in just two weeks, which is incredibly fast nowadays. But the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me, which includes immortal songs like Do You Want to Know a Secret, Love Me Do, they recorded it all in half a day. Yeah. 12 hours some of the songs they would do in just one or two takes and call it good. Like, that's what mm-hmm. we now hear. So, I mean, these guys, Dave, pretty talented. <laughs> I think they did Twist and Shout in one take at the end of the day. One, yeah. Because <laughs> John's voice was shot. They did a take and they were like, let's do another one. And his voice was just gone. <laughs> So I thought that I'd found this conclusive evidence of the principle that you and I have talked about before, that if you worry too much about making your art perfect, you're just going to end up making less stuff and it won't be as good as it could have been, right? Like, just make stuff and make it fast. Don't spend 20 years writing and tweaking one novel. Spend 20 years writing 20 novels. Or you could pull a Harper Lee and spend two years on one novel and... Never write one ever again. Anyway, (laughs) I then got to the Beatles' later years in this book and learned that compared to the 12 hours recording all of Please Please Me, they then spent 300 studio hours producing Revolver, which is Um, also an incredible album. Most known for the song Dr. Robert. (laughs) No, it's (laughs) it's got Tax Around, Eleanor Rigby, Good Day Sunshine, half a dozen other hits. So... I concluded basically what you did, Dave, that I guess the secret to making great stuff is to be the Beatles. (laughs) It's funny that that album is so good that the song you jokingly bring up is also one I really like. (laughs) I mean, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. 
when people bring up like I, the iconic Beatles songs, <laughs> yeah. I could think of 45 before I get to this doctor. Oh, sure. Like, I have no problem understanding it if Dr. Robert isn't on your list of bangers. <laughs> <laughs> I did want to know, Dave, did you have, with these two examples, 12 hours on this album, 300 on this other one, do you have any any takeaway for that? I don't. And actually, I know you said that there aren't as clear of takeaways from these kinds of books, mm -hmm. but I actually think that's more honest to real life. Sure. Because every nonfiction book that is like, this is the one way to be creative or the one way to be productive, mm -hmm. there are always a million examples of people who did it the opposite way and enjoyed great success. Mm -hmm. Whereas this book is a little more honest where it's like, yeah, they knocked this album out really quick and it was a masterpiece. And then they took a long time on this album and it was a masterpiece. I, <laughs> yeah. I just think life is much less tidy than a lot of self-help books make it sound. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. Because if they, if they made it sound less tidy, their book wouldn't sell as many copies. <laughs> if they said the honest thing, which is that life is really complicated and there's no formula to break out success or to making a masterpiece, then why would you buy that book? <laughs> right. No, that's a good point. And honestly, I, part of me will always enjoy the mystique that there is to so much of creativity. Like sure, Michael Crichton, one time when I was doing a, a deep dive uh, in his interviews, I, I, I saw an interviewer ask him what his method was about writing. And Michael Crichton's answer in a nutshell was, uh, I try not to think too much about that whole process. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah. The way that people try to find these really hard rules around creativity, it reminds me of this quote from Joe Russo. He says, the only reason people want screenwriting rules to exist is to cope with the fact that talent, life experience, and point of view are the keys to great writing and they can't be taught. <laughs> so they compensate with a checklist of arbitrary rules about slug lines and we sees. <laughs> Kellen, I want to give you a brain teaser. So I don't know if you've seen Spotify Wrapped, but at the end of the year, for those who don't know, Spotify tells you your top artists and your top songs, and then you can share it on your social media. So my brain teaser is, what do Spotify Wrapped and the Hogwarts houses have in common? <laughs> uh, Spotify Wrapped ranks their songs using giant hourglasses. <laughs> so that's a great answer. Here is my answer. They are both genius marketing because they get you to believe you're a unique, special individual so that you will then promote something very big and conformist. Because everybody who posts their Spotify wrapped online thinks they're showing how unique they are. Like, you know, look at my obscure bands or look how great my taste is. Mm -hmm. But really, we're all just promoting Spotify, this $30 billion company. <laughs> And same with Harry Potter. Everyone wants to think they're a unique, special Slytherin or Ravenclaw. But when you say that, you're just promoting Harry Potter, this globe-straddling colossus. <laughs> so that brings me to my lesson as it applies to the Beatles, which is lesson three, give people multiple choice where every choice is you. John once said, we reckoned we could make it because there were four of us. None of us would have made it alone because Paul wasn't quite strong enough. I didn't have enough girl appeal. George was too quiet, and Ringo was the drummer. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Ringo, man. The thing that got him in the band is also what guarantees he'll never be a star. 
<laughs> anyway, he follows up and says, but we thought everyone would be able to dig at least one of us. And that's how it turned out. Mm. And I think that's a huge part of what makes bands and especially boy bands successful. Mm-hmm. Like by design, boy bands have multiple personality types. So every girl gets to be unique about who she likes while actually liking the same group as everybody else. <laughs> also little sidebar. If you want to know how bad drummers had it, John says that when they were teenagers, they would get attention from girls during shows. So other boys would be jealous and try to beat them up after the show. So John says, most of 15, 16 and 17 was spent running away from people with a guitar under your arm. They'd always catch the drummer. He had all the equipment. <laughs> hey, uh, real quick, circling back to the beginning of, uh, of this point, I want to try something that I think you and I will both be able to do. Okay. I'm going to say the name of a beetle, and then we will both say the name of their Hogwarts house at the same time. <laughs> okay. All right. John Slytherin. Slytherin. <laughs> All right. Ringo Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. <laughs> Do you know how much Hufflepuff wishes it were cool enough to have a drummer? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Paul. Ravenclaw. Oh, really? So I guess my reasoning would be that Paul was the hardest working one, which I thought was generally attributed to, to Ravenclaw. That and just crying a lot at every little thing, <laughs> right, Cho? Uh, and then uh, George would be in Gryffindor because it took bravery for him to even assume that he could write songs <laughs> compared to the great Lennon McCartney. <laughs> Brian Epstein is headmaster. <laughs> okay. And obviously I'm kidding. I love George and so many of his songs. But I say that because when you read this book, you will see that even the authors of this book were like, George, he kind of, he finally started writing some good stuff toward the end there. Anyway, back to Paul and especially John. (laughs) Poor George, man. He got little brothered so much. (laughs) I mean, I think I've said this before. All Things Must Pass, his first album after the Beatles. That's my favorite standalone Beatles album. Because it had so many great songs they didn't let him use as Beatles songs. George Harrison has got to be, in the history of the world, the most incredibly, uniquely talented person who was then just treated like he should be grateful to even be there. It's insane. (laughs) I know. How mad do you think he was when they said no to all his songs and then revolution number nine is eight minutes of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson four, being rich can be inspiring. <laughs> so I know this from experience because during COVID, I lost all my money. <laughs> 2020 was an uninspiring year. So obviously I'm saying this tongue in cheek and I don't even really know what that phrase means, but I do have a lot of canker sores, which by the way (laughs) is a word I'm surprised doesn't show up in come together. The point is the Beatles wrote amazing songs when they were poor, 
But there are also some great songs that would have never existed if they hadn't been wealthy and famous. Here are a few sure. examples. George George wrote, Here Comes the Sun, sitting in a garden one morning with Eric Clapton at one of Clapton's houses. <laughs> That's not something many of us get to do. <laughs> Octopus's Garden. Ringo came up with it after eating octopus for the first time on a yacht. This is a true story. <laughs> He's like, I will tell your story. <laughs> it says that he didn't recognize the dish, so he asked the captain about it, and then the captain told him all about octopuses, that they collect stuff in their caves, like little gardens. So Ringo wrote this song. And I do wonder how octopuses feel about the story of how he came up with their song. I know. <laughs> He's eating an octopus. Like, what if this thing was happy once in his own little place in the shade? <laughs> He's writing lyrics down on a napkin that he's also using to wipe octopus off his beard. Oh, man. Can you imagine... A lion eats you and then writes a song like, My little funny human friend. <laughs> like if the Beatles hadn't broken up soon after the album with his song on it was released, Ringo probably would have written a couple more tunes called like Chicken Patio, <laughs> Hamburger Playground. <laughs> And then finally, the idea for Eight Days a Week came when Paul McCartney asked his chauffeur how things were going. <laughs> the story is his chauffeur replied, oh, working hard, working eight days a week. And I wish that the rest of the story was that Paul was like, oh, what do you mean? And the chauffeur was like, oh, I need your love, babe. Cut to... Paul rushes into the studio to the other three, and he's like, I have an idea for a song. Also, my chauffeur has been strangled, unrelated. Uh, <laughs> poor guy, though. Too bad he's dead, and he never had any good ideas, but I did. Also, crazy that instead of being like, maybe I should give this guy some time off, he's like, this gives me a song idea. <laughs> <laughs> He's scribbling something down. Oh, oh man, I'm sorry. That sounds. How do you how do you spell eight again? Does it have a G? <laughs> Another lyric that shows they're a little financially out of touch. My sister Jess always makes fun of that line. Fun is the one thing that money can't buy. Because <laughs> what? <laughs> of course, money can buy fun. That's like the thing it can buy. <laughs> It can't buy, like, love or lasting happiness, but for sure fun. <laughs> All right, random facts. Kellen, do you know the story of Jimmy Nickel? No. Jimmy Nickel was a normal drummer who got asked to fill in for Ringo for a few days while Ringo was sick. So for a few days, he was the biggest star you can be. He went on the world tour to enormous audiences, height of Beatlemania, and then Ringo comes back and he was just a nobody again. But now he thought of himself as a celebrity. And so he started borrowing money to maintain the image and like parlay his Beatles tour into a big music career. Oh, and it didn't go well. Isn't that like the saddest Prince and Popper story? <laughs> He's still alive. He probably has the time to listen to this podcast. <laughs> 
In discussing the song Revolution 9 in this book, the authors talk about how John and Yoko were avant-garde and writing music concrete, which to me just means that apparently you can put any random crap on a record or a canvas and call it art <laughs> as long as you use French phrases to describe it. <laughs> My Beatles theory is that Ringo will outlive Paul because so far the Beatles have died in reverse order of cheerfulness. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, I think that's my favorite joke of the year. <laughs> so I mentioned on our mini episode uh, teasing the, these Beatles episodes, the writers of this book. I love the work and dedication that they put into collecting all of this information. It's such a treasure yeah. that they have brought to the world. But the writing sometimes... <laughs> it's funny to me how much bias there is toward John. And also just some of the grammar stood out to me. The sheer amount of exclamation marks that they use. <laughs> More than any book I've ever read, much less nonfiction my three favorite examples, it, it just sounds like they're all of a sudden screaming for no reason. These are all quotes with exclamation marks at the end. <laughs> Quote, at one point, Richard Lester lost his temper and threatened to have Paul McCartney's piano removed. <laughs> that does make it feel like the book was written for little kids, doesn't oh, yeah, it? it does. <laughs> Here's another Ian Ikemo being the phonetic rendition of Paul's name passed backwards on a tape, which his friends used to use to write him. <laughs> like, why? Why are you yelling at me? <laughs> Here's the last one. Quote, John and Yoko released an experimental album, Two Virgins, on the cover of which they both posed naked. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny to me that the Beatles were a scandal because remember their parents' generation had just fought in a war that killed like 70 million people mm -hmm. and they defeated a dictator who was trying to eliminate whole races and then parents everywhere were like, I feel threatened when John Lennon tells my kids to shake it up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> twist and shout, twist what? <laughs> Even Elvis, who had just barely been a scandal, complained to Nixon and J. Edgar Hoover that the Beatles were spreading an anti-American spirit. <laughs> like the idea that the Beatles are these communist revolutionaries when they have a whole song about how they hate paying taxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, before we get to the recap, thanks for joining us on this episode. And we're going to be doing part two next week. We have so many more fun uh, and funny anecdotes from this book. So join us next week when I get around to <laughs> part two. So help me, Rhonda. <laughs> all right, to recap our favorite lessons from all the songs, part one. One, find collaborators who make you better. Two, don't be too precious with your art, but also let your art be precious. Three, Give people multiple choice where every choice is you. Four, being rich can be inspiring. So true. <laughs> and five, 
Be friends with Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. 